Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. Turn now uh, to uh, page five, and uh, scripture verse for today, uh, chapter three, one through seventeen. Um, as we celebrate uh, baptism of Jesus, I asked uh, Jordan to put together the the whole of it so we capture um, a sense of what's going on. So, please follow along. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. In the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let us pray for understanding of this passage. Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us hear what you want us to hear from my lips today. 
the story of Jesus' baptism something to teach us. Confront us with that teaching. Reform us. Revive us. Resurrect us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Liberty Church, I have two points to make this morning. Three points, and I would be laboring above my pray grade, I'm afraid. The first point is about the disappearance of ritual in the modern world. And the second point is about the disappearance of repentance, which is tied to the disappearance of ritual. Two words, two disappearances, and a biblical passage, which I hope will speak to both. The focus of most of my reflections will be on the figure of John the Baptist. Imagine being in the presence of John the Baptist this morning. Hard to imagine, I know. Letting that kind of person seize the pulpit in the contemporary church, that would likely lead to a mini-disaster and the mass exodus of congregants. In case you're new to Liberty Church, let me assure you that I am no John the Baptist myself. But I must admit that I'm fascinated by his depiction in the New Testament. What's clear is that J the B was a bit of an odd fellow, set up in the wilderness like the prophets of old. He dresses and behaves like a wild man, although I'm told that bugs are making a comeback in the culinary world. Still, despite his oddities and the severity of his temperament, John the Baptist has no problem drawing a crowd from the surrounding cities. There's something attractive about this man and his message. Whatever he believes in, he really seems to believe in it. His words match his actions. His testimony matches his life. We might describe him today as a man of integrity, or at least as a man who aspires to such. Either that, or we will write him off as a loony or a fanatic, of which there are many examples throughout religious history. But the strangeness of John tracks with the strangeness of his message. Repent. In that respect, it seems appropriate to find John a bit bewildering. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's call to repentance is not to be passed over lightly. It's a call to a more improbable experience than it seems. A transformation, both radical and world-altering, in his promise. This idea that I can turn away from the way that I'm going, from the way that I am, even, is to say something significant about my relationship to the past, present, and future. It's not the default way that we approach the world or our place in it. As we so often hear today and even say so ourselves, I just am the way I am. In a world with far greater possibilities for personal change, certainly beyond what the average first century Jewish peasant might imagine, we moderns can be remarkably complacent about the state of our individual characters, individual desires and habits, and the dominant trends of our society. A darker take would suggest that we are resigned to our present state. 
that we consider what we are to be the sheer result of accumulative forces and impulses and experiences beyond our control, imposing their will on us without room for much input. We are helpless in the present to do anything about the past. And so we feel that we are forced to view the future as an endless more of the same. I admit that I worry about this perspective taking root in my university students. An unscientific survey every year of my, my students tends to reveal just how truncated their sense of agency is. A call to repentance in society such as theirs, which is a society that we handed down to them, is no less outlandish than it was in the first century. But the difference is worth observing. I recall intense conversations with a student this past semester. Intelligent, capable. He couldn't come up with an answer to the reasons for life, the meaning of life. And that troubled him deeply. He wanted to come with me at one point to the prison to take, uh, talk to the men there. I was teaching there at the time. Um, but what they thought the meaning of life might be. And he also kept pressing me, wanting to know what I thought my life turned out, how my life turned out. Uh, not finding a convincing answer for him, I settled on this. Uh, Ethan, my life is not my own. I can't say that I convinced him, but I could tell by his expression that he had never really heard that before. And I also think I discerned that the follow-up question, which is, well, then whose is it? What holds us back from repentance is not simply what we have to confess. It's a lack of faith that anything stands at the end of our confession. A God or a community ready to forgive us, redeem us, to carry us through to the end. In a word, we lack faith that, as John puts it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is why the past can sometimes have such a hold on us. Why it continues to squeeze us, inhibiting us at an individual and a community level. For note, John speaks not only of repentance in this passage, but of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Those who repent are not to stay there, suspended in the air. Returning back to their former reality as if nothing had happened, but are called upon to re-root themselves in the wilderness soil of a new beginning, baptized into a new existence as the people of God. This is the force behind John's denunciation of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If it's no small insult to call a person a viper, Try calling a group of religious leaders a brood of vipers adds a serious accusation. In essence, John is telling them you're poisoning the religion you profess. Your efforts at repentance are empty and futile. The root of your faith is rotten. In your case, it's not enough to claim religious patrimony through Abraham, for God is not interested in bloodlines, but obedience a circumcision of the heart 
as St. Paul will later put it. But we might also recall the words from the prologue of John's gospel. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Following which John adds, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. John's gospel goes on to clarify that to be born of God is to be born again, reborn. And this is what baptism achieves and proclaims for us. The ancient world placed great value on patrimonial status. To be born privileged was to inherit its advantages and assumptions, full stop. And even Jews could be susceptible to this worldly way of thinking, as John the Baptist exposes. To be born of God was to receive a new status, one drawn from a source in the wilderness outside of one's birth. The ritual of baptism breaks the hold the past has on us by declaring that what has been does not determine who we are. The ritual does not cancel or blot out our past, but gives it a new meaning beyond the meanings we might give it. And the great challenge today in understanding our baptism for those of us who've received it is believing that this new meaning has taken root in our lives, freeing us to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. Allow me to say a few words about this, paying attention to future generations. The challenge of believing that new life has taken root derives in part, I think, from the challenge of our contemporary condition of rootlessness. This is a world of broken bonds, empty words, and loose attachments, where less and less of us come from anywhere or stay anywhere for very long. It's also a world that regards rituals and religious communities with a studied indifference, a sentiment which includes a great many Christians who go to church. The rootlessness also impacts how we think about generational inheritance. And here we could profitably call the fourth commandment from the Decalogue, children, honor thy father and mother. The children being addressed here are actually not the youngest among us. It's the parents whose charge it is to raise these children as they were raised, honoring whatever good they were gazing. Connect our children, it seems to me. Connection to a reality beyond the present entertainment ecosystem and to participate with them in a greater adventure. We cannot give to our children what we do not have, nor teach them to take seriously what we refuse to take seriously. In baptism, in communion, in prayer, in service, in coming to church even, we strive to model what we cannot adequately impart to them in words, performing works whose true significance we cannot fully describe. Either that, or maybe we treat life as a series of economic transactions, 
moving through it in perfectly explicable steps and strategies, but leaving them with nothing to wonder at, nothing to draw on, nothing to carry them through from life, from death to life. I'd like to read some lines of a poem at this point. The poem's called Rerooting by the American poet and late Christian convert Denise Levertov. We were trying to put the roots back, wild and erratic, strained root limbs, trying to fit them into the hole that was clean cut in clay, deep but not wide enough, or wide but too square, trying to get the roots back into earth before they dried out and died. As any gardener knows, rerooting can be a risky process. You risk killing the plant that you uproot. And even your best efforts can't guarantee future growth. Either the roots will take or they won't take. Either you preserve the plant's arteries or you snap them and cut off its life force. Levertov's feverish gardener becomes a metaphor for something more profound, a metaphor for us. We knew our own life was tied to that strength, that strength we knew would ebb away if we could not find within us the blessed guile to tempt its energy back to the earth. The poem ends with a realization that I think haunts every human life. And I wake as if from a dream but discover even this digging, better than nothing, has not yet begun. The feverish labor, it turns out, has not even started yet. We wake up in a cold sweat in the dark, aware that once again we are not yet changed, that we continue as we are, that nothing in this world seems to promise us any different. We fear our roots are too deep to be dug up, they're too spread out, and perhaps we don't know what digging up would even involve. Certainly, it doesn't involve simply moving ourselves from place to place. If some of us feel complacent or resigned about our past, others have the instinct to run away from it, to keep flipping the proverbial script with new jobs, new relationships, a new home, even a new church, feverishly trying to reroot life, as Levertov describes. Eventually, God is gracious to us. We wake up to realize the work hasn't even started. Neither patrimony nor money can pave your way to the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we must hear and heed the voice that cries out in the wilderness. So did Jesus. Surrendering both his patrimony and his wealth in God's kingdom. The great question that surrounds Jesus' baptism in the New Testament is why it had to happen at all. He who comes to us unhampered by the sin of humanity's past, not needing to repent of it, but able to forgive those who do. And even John the Baptist must wonder at the reason for it. I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? Jesus replies that this should happen in order to fulfill all righteousness. The act of baptism is a sign of the good news itself. 
It is fitting, he says. By which he simply means, it is beautiful. God has submitted himself to the yoke of human history, to the yoke of our past, showing us the way out of darkness into light. The full meaning of Jesus' act would not be revealed until his death and resurrection. And yet, these central events don't supersede the baptismal ritual, but further cement its significance for Christians throughout time. We, too, are to be baptized as Jesus was baptized, humbly joining him in death in order to be raised to new life. The answer of the Christian church to the grip of the past is that our baptism marks the moment when new life has taken root. The source of this new life remains hidden from us. It's not ours to claim, like a patrimony or a commodity. Rather, it claims us beyond our reckoning and comprehension. A lifetime growing into the truth of our baptism involves the work of repentance shining a light on our past. And that light is the story of Jesus' triumph over death, which baptizes our history with new meaning and new presence. No longer are you the litany of what you were and what you did. No longer does the past have the power to destroy you. Unlike the life which Levertov fears might be ebbing away, your life, however uprooted, unsettled, unsure, is hid with Christ at the right hand of the Father. To the one who says that nothing and no one can change, the church humbly submits that that is not true. Yet what we shall be is only known to us in part. A glimpse of it comes with the Father's pronouncement. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father's pleasure with the Son is his favor upon him, a presence which will see him through from death to life. It's the same with those of us who join the Son in his baptism. God's favor is upon us. He will see us through from death to life. He will do it again and again and again until that day when we meet our death, and he will do it one final time. Liberty Church, let us not grow weary in bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Progress for the Christian is not perfection. It is perseverance. And through perseverance comes the great gift, the gift of hope. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.